Welcome to Horror Origins. My name is Matthew Tantic, and over the course of this podcast, we're going to be delving into horror firsts, dissecting their genesis, and learning a bit more about the history of the cultural world that has sprung up around us. This is episode three, where we're going to be taking a look at the first work of fiction to feature a mad scientist. The author is Mary Shelley, and the story, of course, is Frankenstein. But before we get into it, let's break things down so we know what we're getting ourselves into. First, we're going to be taking a look at the author who wrote it. Then we're going to be taking a look at the context of the world that the story was born into, the archetype of the mad scientist, and then the legacy it's had since its inception. Clear off those condensers and that electrical apparatus from the table, would you? We're going to need the space for this specimen. It's quite fresh, I assure you. I couldn't let those circling medical students get their hands on this one. No, no. Now, throw that first switch, and let's get going. So, let's talk about the author. Well, Mary Shelley was very much a literary woman. Writing short stories, novels, dramas, essays, you name it. And when she wasn't working on her own creative works, she was a dedicated promoter of her husband, Percy Shelley's creations. She was the daughter of a political philosopher and a feminist philosopher, although her mother died shortly after she was born. Like, less than a month after she was born. She grew up in a household that was rich in education, with a, with a politically controversial father and a stepmother, who was their neighbor, um, that she reportedly never grew fond of throughout her entire life. In 1814, Mary began a romance with one of her father's political followers, Percy Shelley, who was already married. So, quite a scandal. Together with Mary's stepsister, Claire Claremont, which is a heck of a name, Mary and Shelley left for France and traveled through Europe. Upon the return to England, Mary, of course, was pregnant with Percy's child, and over the next two years, she and Percy faced ostracism, constant debt, and their death and the death of their prematurely born daughter. They did marry uh, at, in late eighteen sixteen, after, of course, the suicide of Percy's first wife, Harriet. So that's a pretty grim, a grim life, I gotta say. But we're here to talk about Frankenstein, because we can go on and on about Mary all, all, all day, and there are other podcasts that probably dissect that far better than we intend to. So let's talk about the context of the world leading up to 1817, when this story was written. Well, let's see. In 1807, in Manchester, England, the largest uh, factory complex in the world opens, and, and the event draws spectators from across Britain and beyond. The factory uses steam acquired from burning coal, and is a change from power uh, water-driven power sources. The availability of coal is helping the British surpass the Dutch in industry, so we have this boom and new factory innovation the year before, or rather in 1807. So that's about 10 years before, so things are really moving along by the time we get to 1817. In 1812, in England, a few workers called Luddites in various cities in the spinning and cloth finishing industries have been destroying new machinery. They're a group that totally fears technological unemployment 
and some of them are persecuted, I'm sorry, prosecuted and executed by the state. In 1814, uh, a negotiated treaty ends the War of the 1812, the War of 1812, and restores peace and friendship and good understanding between the United States and His Britannic Majesty. In 1815, Napoleon returns to France in February. He inspires men to reach again for glory, and his final military defeat comes June 18th at the Battle of Waterloo. And then we're at one year before, um, we have this incredible uh, event. This It's called the Tambora Eruption of 1816, and it produces what has been commonly called the year without a summer. This eruption just sort of blankets the sky and pushes the temperatures in a very cold degrees for long periods of time. Amid this gloom in Britain, Mary Shelley writes Frankenstein, uh, which is incredible to me, um, and we'll talk about that a little bit later on. But because of this eruption, um, there are massive food shortages, there's a persistent dry fog, which that was reported across even the eastern United States, and the whole thing reddened and dimmed the sunlight every day, for the entire, like, several months. So you, here, here's what you have in a nutshell. You've got increased industry and mechanization. We have the cooling of political turmoil and a cold, dark, hungry summer. What a backdrop to, to, to talk about a story that its themes are obsession, political overreach, I'm sorry, potential overreach of science, and a character grappling with the consequences of owning up to past actions. I mean, it's a, it's a beautiful thing. And more so here than in any story that we have covered so far in the show and any other story that I can think of at the moment, um, we see how much this is a product of the world around it. It's pretty, it's pretty amazing. So let's talk about the story and the, the archetype character. Well, Frankenstein is written in epistolary form, meaning that it's a story that is told through a collection of letters, clippings, and other left-behind materials. Now, epistolary form is a device that writers often use to add verisimilitude to a story by letting the reader experience it as if they were reading first-hand accounts or primary evidence regarding the events of the story. Victor's narrative, which is the bulk of the story, is nested within another person's account, a Captain Walton, another common narrative device that helps get the reader into the world that the story takes place in before it starts giving you the actual story. It's supposed to provide a sort of immersive effect and, again, add realism to it. Victor's character is punctuated by great intervals of obsession, and it begins with an account of his obsession with outdated mystical theories and the addition of a cousin or an adopted orphan, depending on your version, um, to the Frankenstein home. But it's not until the second part of Victor's narrative that we see the full formation of the archetype form of the mad scientist. And to give you a feeling for the character, I'm going to read a section, the first horrifying moment when Victor's work comes to fruition. It was on a dreary night of November that I beheld the accomplishment of my toils. With an anxiety that almost amounted to agony, I collected the instruments of life around me that I might infuse a spark of being into the lifeless thing that lay at my feet. It was already one in the morning. The rain pattered dismally against the panes, and my candle was nearly burnt out when, by the glimmer of the half-extinguished light, I saw the dull yellow eye of the creature open. It breathed hard, a convulsive motion, 
agitated its limbs. I had worked hard for nearly two years for the sole purpose of infusing life into an animate body. For this, I had deprived myself of rest and health. I had desired it with an ardor that far exceeded moderation, but now that I had finished, the beauty of the dream vanished, and breathless horror and disgust filled my heart. Unable to endure the aspect of the being I had created, I rushed out of the room and continued for a long time traversing my bedchamber, unable to compose my mind to sleep. Hmm. I'll note here that it is rare that we see the first of an archetype come into being so fully polished and so complete right at the outset. The characters and tropes that we associate with this type of character are mostly realized here, and while I have said in the past that the first of anything rarely is its best incarnation, this might be the exception to that rule. Frankenstein's legacy is, is prolific. Uh, Frankenstein is infused with elements of the Gothic novel and the Romantic movement, and at the same time, it's an early example of science fiction. Brian Aldiss, a respected English sci-fi writer, has argued that it should be considered the first true science fiction story, because in contrast to previous stories with fantastical elements resembling those of later science fiction, the central character makes a deliberate decision and turns to modern experiments of the laboratory to achieve fantastic results. Now, it's had an extremely considerable influence on literature and popular culture, and spawned a complete genre of horror stories, films, and plays. Frankenstein truly is one of the great horror firsts, and uh, it was definitely one we had to talk about on this episode. So, kudos to Mary Shelley for really not just coming up with an original concept, but a whole original genre of horror fiction. Hey, if you enjoyed this podcast and learning about the strange works of horror that have brought us to where we are today, I implore you to take a moment and rate or review the show. It'll help more people find out about it, and the more people we can get interested in this stuff, the better. And if you appreciate podcasts that are advertisement-free and want to say thanks, or if you want to make a recommendation for the show, feel free to email me at author at or click on the contact button on matthewtansick.com. And links for both of those things will be in the show notes. Lastly, if you want to stay up to speed on this or any of my other creative projects, I do occasionally tweet out on Twitter. Um, you can follow me at TANZ444, that's TANZ444. Feel free to reach out, I would love to hear from you. Until next time, thanks for joining me.